Welcome to the Evolving Accountant Podcast. We all know that some accountants can be boring, but definitely not this one. Why talk trial balances and P&L when we can get ripped jeans into the boardroom and hear business insights from people who have really walked the talk? Get ready. Here comes an all-new episode with your host, Darren Wingfield. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the Evolving Accountant Podcast, powered by Harlan's Accountants. Delighted today to be joined by James Legree, Global Sales Director of Elephant Gin. For our listeners out there, James, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? But most of all, what gets you out of bed in the morning? Uh, yeah, I'm a drinks industry professional. I've been in the alcohol uh, drinks industry now for well over 20 years. I've worked prim- primarily in wine and spirits and, you know, what gets me out of bed in the morning. Many things, really. Obviously, primarily it's, you know, it's providing for my family and knowing that I'm, I'm doing good. But it's, it's the love of the job that I do. So I really like the industry I'm in. It's a very friendly and welcoming industry. Uh, hard at times, but it's very reward- rewarding. And, uh, yeah, it's, there's very few people that are unhappy to see you when you turn up with a bottle of gin or a bottle of wine uh, to a meeting. And as such, you generally have, you know, you have very positive meetings. You know, I'm I'm out and about. I'm not always anchored to a desk. So generally speaking, it's the diversity of my day that gets me out is, you know, the challenges of every day is different. It's not a mundane industry to be in. You know, there's always a challenge, be it the recent duty increase that everybody in the industry is just having to swallow in the UK, or be it a, an issue overseas, or be it a positive you know, deal coming up. So it's just, you know, every day is different. So when I think the challenge of every day is uh, what really gets me up in the morning. Cool. So, well, James, you mentioned there that you've been in the industry for a few years now. Can we sort of delve a bit deeper into what that career or that journey has been like, ultimately getting to where we are today? I was very fortunate that my family actually had a winery in New Zealand. Uh, my aunt and uncle uh, were the owner operators of uh, Mudhouse Wines and Legree Wines in New Zealand. After school, I was a bit not sure what I wanted to do, and I ended up going to work for them. I got a taste for, funnily enough, for nice wines. I started enjoying the um, the science behind it. Uh, went to study to become a winemaker and viticulturist. I went and did my uh, for my degree for that. In parallel, doing my WSET diploma, which is a higher level wine and spirits diploma for more of the industry standard thing. So, degree and diploma at the same time, which was very good. And then it's just kind of the journey began from wine, uh, working for a family company, where, as anybody who's worked for family companies will know, you're a highly educated slave labour, to you know going out into the world, stepping out of the family business deciding to come back to the UK to learn about the drinks industry and learning from uh, wholesalers, brand agencies inside of the UK, collecting information, hoping to go back to the family business. That wasn't meant to be because after a number of years working in varying wholesalers, like the likes of Matthew Clark, Berkman Wines, brand agencies like Ray and Nephew, I ended up, the family decided they were going to sell the winery. So I ended up uh, staying put in the UK and just continuing my career in that deal. I carried on working for larger wholesalers, slowly incrementing my role every time from being the basic field guy out in the car just every day, selling to pubs and restaurants to being a premium wine development manager in Matthew Clark, where I was given a, a larger territory it was with one other colleague managing the agenda for the wine category for the business to working to more off-trade in the drinks industry we will normally refer to on-trade being bars and pubs 
and the off-trade being the, the retail shops. The, form, the, the early part of my career, which is quite common for most, is the on-trade, selling to pubs, restaurants, etc. And then I moved over to a company called Copestick Murray, as it was then now Fresnay Copestick, primarily selling uh, to developing brands to launch into the off-trade, the uh, off-trade sector of the business, uh, wholesale cash and carry, uh, single stores like co-op, and then up to the multiple grocers. I continued that career into national accounts, working for a company called Inotria Wines, which is a, another large composite wholesaler. And then I did something very strange where I, I decided to move away from wine due to the fact that the, bit, the industry was moving away from brand and the passion of what we want to do. And it was just more FMCG sales. It was about moving boxes of wine and, and drinks. And it wasn't really who I am. I'm, I'm not a commodity salesperson. I'm a, I'm a drinks. I'm a brand advocate and brand salesperson. Uh, so I moved over to Spirits, where I worked at a, uh, for a brand that some of you might know called Chase Distillery, uh, which is a premium luxury distillery that makes vodka and gin in Hereford. I worked for them for a number of years. And yeah, then, then I started um, my tenure, quite literally, in the, the gin industry, uh, where I went from there to a couple of other companies where I went uh, from Chase. I did a small stint at another small distillery that I went for. I was head of sales at Solcom Distillery down in Devon, where I had a, a great run there for many, many years, helping them grow and establish uh, their brands more nationally, breaking out of that regional bubble and turning the regional brand of, of Solcom Gin into a national brand uh, and helping it go international as well. And from there, the current company I'm working for, Elephant Gin, picked up the phone to me and said, James, uh, we like the cut of your jib. Um, what you've done for Solcom, could you come and uh, do that, but on a global scale for us? And uh, so my journey is really stepped from, you know, from that basic salesperson in a car, driving around from pubs to now being a global sales director, uh, managing 42 countries around the world, America, Germany, Italy, uh, obviously the UK and uh, the Asia Pacific market. So it's uh, it's been quite a journey. I feel tired feel just listening to it. So in your words, can you describe what the Elephant Gin brand does? Because it's quite an interesting story there when I was doing my snooping around as usual. I would say it's quite different to that of probably other gin providers out there. Yeah, I could give you the sort of the elevator pitch, so to speak, that, you know, Elephant Gin is a multi-award winning ultra premium gin made from, you know, the, the finest botanicals ingredients. But the key difference is we have elephant conservation in our heart and our soul. The brand was started uh, 10 years ago this year, and uh, it was initially founded by uh, Robin and Tessa Gerlach, and they were out in Africa. Uh, working with um, elephant uh, NGOs and conservation projects. And they just said, we've got to do something to do something to help the African elephant, because as it stands, the African elephant could face total extinction by 20, as soon as 2030, if, if change is not made dramatically. So they took that and said, right, we've got to create something that's going to create money for elephant conservation, but it can't just be something that's quick and dirty and cheap. It's got to be something that's got to be premium. It's going to have sustainability as in a business sustainability so we can regularly give money to conservation. Robin Gerlach is, um, he, he loves the science side of, of distillation. And fortunately, 10 years ago, the gin boom was, was just in its infancy. So they created the, one of the first sort of craft gins uh, in the UK market. And it's quite funny, even though they were living in the UK, it was actually, it's actually a German company. The distillery has and always will be in Germany. So it's a German gin championing elephant conservation using African botanicals. And what they've really done is they've created 
what I like to call an international gin. You know, it's blending European botanicals, African botanicals in this medium of gin and to create just a, a truly fantastic product that is globally regarded as a fantastic product and pretty much won everything. We've actually been voted the best gin in the world twice, which is a huge accolade for us to have. So, um, but it, it's, it's a major, major part of what we're about. But it, the sustainability piece is very important for us. And it always goes back to then, you know, what gets me out of bed in the morning? This is one of the elements, knowing that... I'm making a positive impact for something in my life. So when my children say, Daddy, what do you do for a job? What are you doing to help save the world? You know, I can say I'm doing my little bit, uh, even though I'm selling gin, but I'm helping the elephants. And uh, that's, a, that's a lovely thing to be able to say. Cool. So obviously you used the word sustainability a few times yeah. during that. I hate the word, but we'll use the elevator pitch. Can we rebrand it as the elephant pitch? But obviously, with sustainability, B Corp being positive change in the FMCG environment, the eco bottle of obviously the that the gin's in as well, and mm-hmm. um, the Elephant Gin Foundation. Can we talk more around the efforts that the brand are making? And obviously, some you've touched on some of the reasons why. And from an outsider looking in, the sort of the brand is. That sustainability first piece. Yeah, I think I think there's two elements. There's obviously there's the elephant conservation side of thing. That's that if we park that to one side, I think all of us collectively in the business agree that sustainability is something that is it's part of a corporate responsibility these days. You know, we, we're not in the age of you know just you know strip mining the world and you know just doing business for business sake. And it actually makes good business sense a lot of the time. So as a business, we are constantly trying to improve our sustainability, be it through carbon footprint, uh, how much water we use in the distillery, recycled water, energy usage. And when you make those steps, it actually helps your business be more sustainable because you're future-proofing your business with against energy crisis and other things. But then there's also the sustainability of things like B Corp. B Corp is not only something that you know, every business should strive for. Um, I actually believe B Corp in the FMCG world, if you've got aspirations for being in a multiple grocer environment in the next five to 10 years will be a prerequisite. If you're not B Corp, you know, you're going to be on the waiting list. You know, it's going to be a tick box that you will have to meet in order to get listings in the premium grocer segment. So it's future proofing yourself while also making sure that you as a business, you know, do everything you can to make sure that you're making good choices, not the cheap choices all the time, but the positive choices to make you know, a positive impact, but you can still be a profitable business by being sustainable. We give 15% of all of our profits for elephant conservation, but yet we're still a profitable business. You know, you can be sustainable, give to charity and be a profitable commercial business. We are for for profit business, but we can also make a positive impact in the environment around our working life and the environment around the elephant conservation piece as well. Okay, that makes sense. So at the minute, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe there's five product, five different drinks that you make. Yeah, well, we've got our core range of gins, which is our London Dry Gin, which is probably 70% of everything we sell, which is a classic gin and tonic for your, for your lovely gin and tonic sundown, as we call it. You know, you get home from work, you want a nice, lovely gin and tonic. That's a, that's a classic gin and tonic, and it's a, it's a lovely product. And we, as I mentioned, we use African botanicals in our gin alongside uh, Macedonian juniper. Uh, we use apples from around the distillery in Germany. So we're really blending European and African botanicals. But because Africa has got a huge larder of fantastic flavors, there's a, a fantastic 
something called buku that we use, and it's very popular out in uh, places like Kenya and um, uh, the Maasai use it as an anti-inflammatory and anti. Um, uh, almost antiseptic and you can make tea with it it's fantastic but the flavor it's mentholy black curranty cassisi it brings this amazing flavor that you just don't get you know it's not just a mundane oh we, this is an orange gin this is a rhubarb gin it, you know, it brings these really interesting flavors that are you just can't get in europe and i think that's why our gins have been you know so sought after and so award-winning is because the flavors we can bring they're not flavored gins. They are properly made gins, but they are interesting. They bring a flavor profile that is unusual, but really, really pleasant. And alongside that, we have our Navy Strength gin. Our Navy Strength is exactly the same botanical flavor profile of our London Dry gin, except it sits at 57% ABV. So it's it's not a shrinking violet, and uh, but it's we use twice the amount of botanicals. Uh, so it's very huge amount of flavor. It's actually the gin that won the best gin in the world twice, uh, which is a huge accolade for us to have. Next to that, we also have a very popular product called uh, Slow Gin. Obviously, us in the UK and Europe, we're quite familiar with Slow Gins. Um, I think every mo- everybody's mother in the in the countryside probably makes their own. But we've been very lucky in the fact that um, we've been voted as one of the best Slow Gins in Europe pretty much every year. We're generally in the top three, nine out of ten times. And it's got a very unique flavor profile because we don't use loads of sugar, which is very pop- common normally. So it's uh, it's very popular in mixology in cocktail bars, but it's also very popular in the in the old hip flask when you're walking your dog. So it's a really, really pleasant, uh, pleasant product. One of our more latest uh, recent products is our orange and cacao, orange and chocolate gin, which is a very unique flavor profile. We're one of only two distilleries in the world currently doing it because the science, the way to make it is very difficult because traditional, our traditional gins are made with a copper pot still. I'm sure your listeners are all familiar with that process and the pictures of a copper pot still. But modern techniques and modern science is available to us now. Um, we use something called a vacuum distillation or a rotavap still, which allows you to boil the liquids, let's sort of evaporate the liquids uh, at lower temperatures. So we're distilling lower. So things like chocolate, where you have to distill in a copper pot still at a high temperature, because it's basically a giant kettle. But with a rotavap, you're putting the liquids under a lower atmospheric pressure. And because of that, the liquids will boil lower. You know, you can extract clean flavors. Uh, so we're really embracing modern techniques alongside traditional techniques, because I think, you know, I think this goes to show that dist- even though we're 10 years old as a distillery, we're very forward in our mentality to evolution. You need to keep momentum. You can't just say, hey, we make a gin like this just because it's always been done. Yes, we have those gins, but we've always got to keep that, keep the conversation moving forwards, always looking for that next interesting product. You know, we want to, we want to find inspiration from multiple sources and we're just not going to close ourselves off or blinker us to not looking at them because sometimes the opportunities are there pointing cases the 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 ready to drink market we initially didn't think it'd be something we'd want to go into but we had a dalliance and we've made a a negroni which is a gin vermouth and bitters combination for those people who don't know what a negroni is Uh, in in a cocktail uh, you pour it, it's quite a strong drink. You pour it over ice and you have it as a, a digestive after your meal. It's now online, our best-selling product. Uh, it's outselling our London dry gin because it's just hit that segment of the market. Um, it's in a 70CL bottle and it's done incredibly well. So by not saying to ourselves, no, let's not look at that. We're a gin company. You know, We've created a new skew in our range that does incredibly well, meets a 
you know, that, that internet shopper market really, really well for those people who are fast on the go. They like Chin. They know our brand. They know that they're giving to Elephant Conservation by buying our product. And they know that the quality of what everything we do is of such a high level. You know, we have regular repeat purchases as a, as a result, which is absolutely fantastic. And we have more to the range. Coffee liqueur, we bring out limited editions every year. So, yeah, we're always on the move, always thinking. And, um, and yeah, it's very exciting. So you mentioned Forbes in the new process of distilling. Yeah. Is this going to change the way gin is made in the future and sort of the flavours that we can expect going forward? Well, I think we've already seen it to a certain extent, but not many people talk about it because there's a... There's definitely a very feeling of you know behind closed doors, you know, this is the flavor you get. I'm quite, you know, I believe in sharing and education. The more people people know about these processes, the more it's interesting. These processes have been around for a long time. They're very hard to commercially scale. So the bigger companies like, you know, Diageo's and uh, Bacardi, they're very, you can't really do these sort of product, products on a big scale currently. You don't have giants vacuum stills uh, available at the moment. But um, it's definitely something that smaller to medium-sized distilleries are very much looking into. And we're actually seeing it in the bars themselves. They are buying this equipment. The top premium bars will actually have this equipment in situ so they can make or adapt their own liquids as well. So I think this high-level mixology or high-level way of looking at things, you'll you'll definitely see very much more in the progressive distilleries. And there's, yeah, and, and everyone's looking at different techniques all the time. Okay. okay. So what's around the corner for the business? Well, we're going through a very exciting period at the moment. It's our 10-year anniversary. We're just opening our new state-of-the-art distillery in just outside of Hamburg, which is very, very exciting for us because it gives us the opportunity to really drive and level up our business and scale our business. Uh, our previous distillery, we'd got to a point where our future goals would not be achievable there because we couldn't scale it to the point we wanted to. So we had to bite the bullet and unfortunately built it at a very expensive time, thanks to um, thanks to our friends over in Russia. But we, we pressed ahead because that was our strategic imperative to get that done. And we've also going through an acquisition process at the moment where a wholesaler and importer that we work very closely with for many years, Compagnia de Carabi in Italy, have come on as a strategic partner and they've taken a majority uh, investment into our business. And we're now moving forward in that. And with their help and our new distillery, we really feel we're in an exciting point now to scale our business dramatically onto the footprint we currently have globally. But we're now going to have financial resources available to us so we can really invest into our A&P, into, into new markets to really tr- gain that momentum in a tough scenario at the moment. The, the drinks market, the premium sector of the market is very, very tough globally right now. But with that extra resource available to us, we can um, hold our ground and we can invest and engage with people far more and hopefully um, and show growth in the next couple of years. So it's very exciting for us. Okay. So obviously you've been in this sector for a little while and plenty of experience in it. Yes. What would James of today tell James of then that one thing when you were starting out? What would be the words of wisdom? It depends. I've got advice for every single year I've been in the industry, I think. I'd say when I was younger, it's a bit of a cliche, and I'm sure everyone says this when when they've got time to reflect back, is to take more risk when you're younger. You know, when you're older, you have 
children, mortgages, wives, you know, you have more responsibility. And as such, you have that pressure of wanting to make sure you protect what you have. So you are, you tend to be more risk adverse the older you get. So I'd say I'd advise myself to take a little bit more risk. I'd also say, don't fear failure. Society, especially for my generation, the word failure has got huge negative connotations. But if you don't try to do something, you'll never know success. And if you're scared of trying things because of the fear of failure, it ends up starting, you know, stagnating you and, and, and you'll, you'll step back rather than step forward as, as habit. So I would say, don't be afraid of failure. You know, step, for, you know, step forward, have a go, take the learnings from it, and then try again with that new information you have. Because when you're younger, you can make mistakes and learn from them with the consequences being far less than they are when you're older because the implications. And I think I wish I had more of that tenacity with me when I was younger to take those risks because who knows what, what could have happened. But saying that, you know, I've been very fortunate in what I've achieved so far. So, yeah, take more risks. Don't be afraid of failure. Give it a go. Is there a risk or an opportunity that you didn't take that on reflection now you think yeah, should have? Oh, <laughs> well, so that's that's the that's the beauty of you know twenty twenty hindsight, isn't it? You know, you know, there's there's roles I've stepped into that didn't turn into the role I wanted it to be, and ended up not being what I wanted it to be, and it put put myself into a tough position. Life's a journey. It's really hard to say that because you you make the choices at a given time and a place. Could I've been braver on some of them? Yes. Oh, that's a, that's a really tough question, actually. I think there's there's elements where I with certain jobs where I wish I went for them where I was I was I was scared I I wasn't able to do that role at that time because I just had the fear that I wasn't good enough but yeah you know, that was before the days of the 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 wave of entrepreneurs we see in the world of, and you know, the, you know the advice of people like Richard Branson to say you know if you don't feel like you can take the if you've offered a job and you and you can take the job take the job and then hire somebody to help you do achieve that job or or find somebody who can give you the tools you need to achieve that job but don't let fear block you i think you know a little bit of that would have been good there's roles i wish i'd taken but you know i'm i mean the the job i am now i could argue that you know i'm at, i am where i'm supposed to be at the moment so um very tough question to answer sorry <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 appreciate that. Last question for myself, James. One of our core values is we love to yeah. learn. So we always ask every guest, how do you learn? Who do you take advice from? And at this stage, if you have any sort of recommended reading business books or other podcasts that you listen to that, that have helped you on your journey. Truth be told, the way I learn, I've got some, uh, some a lot of people, your, your listeners probably um, have is dyslexia. And I'm very much a learn by doing person. And I, I talk to people a lot. I think I get a lot out of networking and conversation. And that's something that's where I like to read autobiographies from you know, successful leaders, but not just business leaders, military leaders. I look, I look for inspiration in multiple sources from you know, conservation, from business world, military world, uh, any, anywhere I can gain insight into leadership, into situational awareness, into you know, to how to react in certain circumstances and how to communicate. But the best learning I've ever got is put yourself into positions where you need to talk to people. Get out there, get to uh, networking events, meet people, talk to people, uh, and increase your personal network. Because that will not only give you the tools, it'll give you a resource. And that's the one thing I've learned is by networking, I've got over 10,000 people on LinkedIn that 
you know, I've got a good chunk of those where I can reach out to them and say, hi, I've got a question. You know, can I bounce this idea off you? And I think that's a really powerful tool to have rather than just reading and, uh, you know, taking your own opinion and listening to a podcast and, and trying to simulate, simulate that information on your own. I think it's really important to bounce off ideas off people, you know, use multiple resources, build your personal network. So when you do have scenarios where you, you might feel out of your depth or you need someone to bounce off, you can ask that question to people and you can then make a far more informed decision. And I think that's something that, um, I've personally found incredibly useful over my career. And especially when I, you know, my career has been in the drinks industry for that whole time. So my network is very much focused on the beat up beer, wines and spirits world. You know, I'm very fortunate that I can, you know, if I've got a question, I've generally got somebody I can pick up the phone to or message and say, can I ask you advice on something? And I think that is a, a very, very important thing for anybody in the business world now to consider not just to read about things, but to engage Thank you for that answer. Last thing for me is to say thank you for your time. Thank you for being a guest. Thank you for sharing so much of your insights. And once again, for being so open. Always happy. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks for listening to The Evolving Accountant. You can find out more and get show notes for this and all our other episodes at theevolvingaccountant.co.uk.